0: Who likes Joy to the World? A few of you guys. That's too bad. I'm sorry, but that last experience was apparently miserable for all of us. Now, Joy to the World is a great song. Uh, it is this fine year, 2020, 301 years old. It was actually written back in 1719 by Isaac Watts. Many of you know that name, the famous father of English hymnody. It's perhaps the best known of his over 700 hymns that he left as a gift to the church. But it wasn't originally set to the melody that we sing today. That wouldn't come until later in 1848 when Lowell Mason uh, borrowed, stole, (laughs) took a theme from George Friedrich Handel called Antioch and paired it with the song. Uh, There weren't a lot of DMCA takedown notices, I guess, back then. So he pulled that off but it was a perfect combination. In fact, Joy to the World became such a successful song that it is considered to be today the most popular hymn in the English language, appearing in more hymnals than any other song by a wide margin. But what inspired Isaac Watts to take quill and paper and begin to pen Joy to the World, The Lord is Come? Interestingly enough, it was not The New Testament passages about the birth of Christ, but rather it was Psalm 98 that was his text that he was reflecting on, and I think it's a fantastic introduction to our passage in John this morning, so allow me to read it to you, and you can follow along in your Bibles if you'd like, but from Psalm chapter 98, we read this, a psalm, O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people's With equity. A great psalm, and one I think just very beautifully sets the scene for our text in John today as we prepare to conclude our Advent series and study the culmination of the story of Lazarus as we do this against the backdrop, looking forward to Christmas this week, our own Christmas Eve services as well. I want us to particularly note how this psalm gives us an understanding of joy that provides a real hope for us today. Because the psalmist here isn't calling for loud music and joyful singing to simply drown out his sorrows or distract him from the hopelessness of life. No, indeed. He begins with a call to sing because of what God has already accomplished in the past. Happy birthday, Lois, by the way. The many victories of God paper the walls of history. Then he transitions into a call for joy when we anticipate all that is yet to come. Our God is a promise-making God. He is a covenant-making God, and his central covenants all ring a common theme, salvation. Not just a salvation for Israel, But for all the nations and for all the earth, therefore Israel must sing. The nations must sing. The mountains with their rivers, the seas, and all they contain must sing, because the king of kings reigns, and the king of kings will return. This is a biblical framework for joy. Or perhaps rather, it is a framework for biblical joy. Because this world has its joys, Burger King sent me a message last week. They told me to make sure I didn't miss celebrating Mary Fizziness. there's no, you know if, if that isn't the spirit of Christmas, I don't know what is. <laughs> I think the King of Burgers has a very low view of joy compared to the King of Kings. Does he not? But even those joys that touch upon things that matter, the joy of family, the joy of hard, productive work, the joy of romance, the joy of close friendship, even these joys are not invulnerable. Death, betrayal, sickness, even stress can wrestle these earthly joys from our fingers. The joy Isaac Watts calls a world to in his hymn is a joy anchored in a fact so big, so unchangeable, and so universal that it can anchor the souls of every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people. This kind of joy is a joy for the people of God alone because it is a joy produced as a fruit of the Spirit of God alone, and it is a joy that cannot be imitated. Nothing smells like real bacon except for real bacon. Those of you who have ever bought a candle and been disappointed understand what I'm talking about. (laughs) Nothing smells like real joy, but the good news that Jesus has come into this world to reclaim his people and his place from the wasteland of the curse. So then if you want a short definition, here is joy. Joy is the settled optimism of a soul that has placed its faith in Jesus. True joy is the settled optimism of a soul that has placed its faith in Jesus. It isn't a feeling, but it shapes feelings. It isn't happiness, but it journeys ever towards it. It is the experience of true contentment. It is the capacity to allow truth to calm storms within And to summon the harp and the lyre of hope, even in the rains of sorrow. And so with all that as our background, we turn to our text in John chapter 11 this morning. And it really is a masterclass in joy. Joy's promise, joy's power, and the choice that faces all who approach the precipice of true joy. And for those of you who take an unusual amount of delight in guessing the blanks in your sermon outline before we get to them. Merry Christmas. <laughs> so turn with me to John 11. Look with me, beginning in verses 38 to 41, the first part of it, at the promise of joy. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and we will stop there for now. Remember where where we are at in this story. Jesus intentionally delayed his coming to the aid of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha until after Lazarus. Had died. He declared that that was so that God could be glorified in a unique way. And his arrival now at the city of Bethany has been a very emotional one. Martha came to Jesus and wrestled with the theology of Jesus' delay. And Jesus drew her back to her faith in his deity. Mary came and wrestled with the sorrow brought about by Jesus' delay. And Jesus sympathized with her in tears and weeping. Jesus himself has been deeply moved and provoked, literally stirred in his soul by this scene of pain and death before him. Jesus is not dispassionate about suffering. He was not simply a man who suffered. He was a man of suffering. And so we pick up the story as Jesus has asked to be led to where Lazarus was laid, and now they approach the very place. And in verse 38, then we see, having been shown the way, Jesus comes to the tomb, and he is confronted with a very poignant scene. Think of what this was like through the eyes of the Savior. The tomb represents so vividly as a symbol that great enemy he had come to defeat. And there interred within, one he loves dearly, cut off from the living by death. All around him stand his friends, his disciples, Mary, Martha, those that he loves, who will all one day face just such a tomb. The crowd pressing in behind reminds Jesus of the sheer scale of ruin that death wreaks on all mankind. Jesus knows he himself will shortly lie within just such a tomb. It's a moment that really encapsulates so much of the big picture of what Jesus' life is all about. And so for the second time this day, seeing this scene, the heart of Jesus is provoked. It is the visceral reaction of the Creator to the plight of the fallen creation, And you, this morning, who have faced the bitter gall of death, who have felt your own heart provoked by the wrongness of death, take courage and know it provokes the heart of our Savior, too. We read, It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. The tomb here of Lazarus, like most in the land of Israel, was a cave hewn in the limestone a simple opening would lead to a low-roofed chamber with ledges or nooks carved to receive the bodies of the family who had made it. And then to keep predators, scavengers, or even just tomb robbers from desecrating the tomb and those who laid there, a large stone would be set at the entrance of that cave. And these stones, often aided by a ditch or channel that they could be set down into, would be very heavy and effective at keeping out any individual who was trying to get in. Only a group of the strong could lift such a stone once it had been placed. And that's exactly what Jesus is now calling his disciples and the bystanders to do. Jesus provoked in his heart, he's not stopping here for a sermon, he's moving directly to the great miracle for which he came to the city. But then Martha jumps in with her famous objection. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. It's almost an involuntary reaction in her calling Jesus to reconsider his request. As one scholar noted, our natural thinking is never swift enough to rise to the height of our faith. And this appears most frequently when faith is to be rewarded by actual sight. You ever notice that that sometimes we get the most jumpy right before God does something that's the most awesome? Remember, it was Martha who had just declared that Jesus was the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. But here, all she can think of in the moment is that this gesture of Jesus is going to end in a humiliating disaster. Unlike the Egyptians who embalmed their dead on occasion, mummified them through this lengthy 70 day long process Pretty gnarly, too, for you kids that want to ask your parents to explain in detail how that all works later. (laughs) Jewish burials did nothing to slow decay. The body was wrapped in linens and spices for burial, but the spices were not for preserving. They were merely to mask the smell of decomposition. So you can imagine if on a Sunday in the summer you've got a pot roast on and you go home and you set it out in the hot summer sun just to, you know, rest for a bit before you carve it, and then you forget about it until Thursday. There's no amount of rosemary and thyme that's going to make you put that back on the dinner table. Martha is horrified that Jesus is about to expose her, expose the disciples, expose her closest friends, and Jesus himself to a putrid scene that will forever be their last memory of Lazarus. She doesn't want to see her brother like that. We can sympathize with Martha, can we not? In a similar way, how often do we fear to expose to the Lord those things that we think are too hopelessly foul to be redeemed, even when Jesus calls us to remove the stone and let him see? Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Jesus doesn't simply motion the men to proceed. He doesn't move past Martha's comment. He responds to it, but he doesn't explain to her why her central concern over the given circumstances is unfounded. He doesn't tell her, don't worry about it. It's not going to be as bad as you think. Instead, he explains the only important thing at the moment is her trust in the Christ she has just confessed. The times in life that you will be told how Jesus is going to act in the resolution of whatever crisis you're in is exceedingly rare. Jesus doesn't call us to research his plans and his methods. He calls us to trust his power and his love. And notice also how everything points back to the glory of God. The world was created to demonstrate the weightiness, the worthiness, and the beauty of God. The fall of the world into sin did not prevent God from doing this. In fact, it set the stage for the greatest display of glory in all of time and eternity, the coming of God in the form of a man to inexplicably redeem those who had rebelled against him. And he would do this by leaping into the jaws of death itself and emerging victorious, and we are seeing a foreshadowing of that victory here. And before Jesus toys with death that he is about to slay, he calls Martha's faith back to the fore. I don't know what expressions transpired between them after that. If Martha herself nodded to the men to proceed, but the conversation had accomplished its purpose. And so in verse 41, we begin by seeing they removed the stone. We don't know exactly when the miracle of bringing Lazarus to life took place. Is it possible that as that stone was lifted out, indeed there was a stinky odor that came out of that tomb? Or did they begin to be suspicious, wondering, hmm, this thing should be smelling a lot worse than it is. I wonder what's going on. We're not... We're not sure what was going on there, but we do know this, joy is on its way for those gathered around this tomb and that joy is attached to the promise that Jesus has made that he goes to wake Lazarus up and that God is about to be glorified. Our first lesson this morning is this, pin your joys to Jesus's promises, pin your joys to Jesus's promises. Don't let your soul rest on any pillar that does not have its first course laid in the promise of God. What do you look to even this Christmas season to refresh your soul? What are you counting on to bring you joy? For some of you younger ones, maybe it's you're really hoping you get that present under the tree. I'm pretty sure Toller got the last salad shooter for miles, so you're going to have to hope that wasn't on your list. But for some of us that are older, after a long, hard year, is it children being nearby, grandchildren being nearby, a break from, from work, a chance to rest, is that what we're looking to? If I can just attain that this Christmas season, then I can be refreshed in my soul and have joy. Temporary refreshment you may find, but joy is not there. That's why so many people, there's this massive surge of depression in the early new year as people realize, man, it didn't work. Pin your joys to the promises of Jesus, And the good news is Jesus has a promise for everyone. He has a promise for everyone. Here it is. Believe in Jesus and you will see the glory of God. That's a promise for those here today who have never surrendered to Jesus as king. If you will even now this very minute cry out in your soul and ask God to accept you as his own because Jesus took your place before the judgment throne of God, you will see the glory of God. You will have a joy open to you of entering into the family of God this very minute and becoming an heir with Christ of all those things that truly matter and which cannot be taken away. It is also a promise for those who call Jesus King. Don't ignore the tomb. Do not pretend that the hardships of this life are just in your imagination. But remember that you serve a king who has never and will never leave or forsake you. The one who died and rose again is the one who walks beside you and there is nothing he cannot do. The one who died to set men free now lives to reconcile all things to himself. That means he is even now in the process of making right all the things which are wrong all those things that provoke our soul and his. We may have a terrible chill come over us when we enter the valley of the shadow of death, but we can call upon the settled joy of knowing that every shadow will draw back one day and disappear when Jesus finishes what he is even now up to. And you will stand with him on that day. This is real Christmas joy. The Grinch only got halfway. When he observed Christmas is about more than packages and all the trappings, he still fell short. We'll cut him some slack. He's a cartoon. Christmas is not about holding love in our hearts. It's not about being with family, manifesting some intangible spirit of Christmas. No, the joy of Christmas is that the armies of God bent low over shepherds outside Bethlehem and said, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. Is your joy this year tied to the promises of God in Christ? Is your joy bigger than COVID? Is it bigger than politics? Is it bigger than the pain of death itself? If it isn't, then the good news is that you have not exhausted the joy of Christ but you have yet to fully believe and fully see the glory of God. Obviously, the story of Lazarus does not simply end here with the promise hanging in midair. And so we turn to the second half of verse 41, and we see that in addition to joy being connected to the promises of Jesus, it is connected to the power of Jesus The power of Jesus. Continue on with me in verse 41. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. With the opening of the tomb now yawning before him, Jesus stops to pray. It's the second of three recorded prayers in the Gospel of John. All are precious windows of Jesus' talking about his mission with his father and the perfect unity between father and son that is had there. As John has shown us over and over in John, there's a pattern to these miracles, and Jesus is pulling us back into that pattern. First, Jesus confronts an impossible situation. Jesus presents himself as the one sent from the father and calls for belief. Then Jesus performs a miracle, and then the people respond. This miracle is no different, and Jesus is letting us listen in as he thanks the Father before the miracle is performed for always hearing the voice of the Son. This once again establishes that Jesus is doing the will of the Father, and that as the Father is pleased to do his work through the Son, there can be no mistake, Jesus is from the Father with the Father's divine approval, which means his message is true. And he's once again calling for the crowd to believe and to enter into the joy that he promises. And what a precious truth it is for us who have been brought into the family of God that just as the Son of God has always access to the Father and the Father always hear him, so all the sons of God can at all times pray and be heard. We do not always pray perfectly in accordance with the will of the Father as Jesus did, but we all have perfect access to the Father just as Jesus did. And so in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And so we come finally to that moment we've been building towards. Jesus commands Lazarus to come forth. And frankly, that's not hard to do in and of itself. Anybody can say those words. And tragically, I recall a church that sought to do something similar not that long ago, and they spent days trying to call someone back from the grave. But they failed. They failed as all who have ever tried to bring the truly dead back to life have failed. And I don't mean temporary medical death when a heart stops beating for a time only to later be revived. I mean dead, dead, four days dead, Lord, he stinketh dead. But the grave which callously refuses to hear any other voice hears and obeys the voice of the Lord of life. And just in case we missed it, John emphasizes, this is indeed the man who had died who came out. It wasn't that one of those who was rolling the stone away had wandered into the tomb to see what was going on and just came came stumbling out at an awkward moment. This was Lazarus, the one who had been called by name, and he came out as he went in, bound in his burial clothes. A little detail here, but one that emphasizes the physical reality of this miracle. It wasn't a shining apparition that floated out of the tomb. It was a hobbling man, smelling like a Christmas ham, all spiced and ready to go into the oven. His face wrapped, his hands and feet bound, probably just hopping towards the dim light he could see through the cloth still tied over his face. And so Jesus says to those standing around, unbind him and let him go. Again, those standing around get involved in the miracle. Kind of wonder how long this scene played out. How long Lazarus stood there, everybody else's jaws slowly being accumulated from the floor, saying, you know, "Um, excuse me, (laughs) could I get a little help? Martha, you have done a very good job with these bindings. (laughs) Jesus breaks whatever frozen moment there was and bids Lazarus be unbound and set free. This is no ordinary power. This is resurrection power. It is a power not simply to free a spirit in the afterlife, but to raise a body and let a human being walk as a human being, body and soul, again. The joy we celebrate at Christmas is more than a warm holiday feeling because it stems from the happiness we have knowing that Jesus has the power to, as C.S. Lewis said, make death work backwards. He can draw the very sting of death itself from our wounded souls. And if he can and does do that, he can and will do much more besides. Christian, do not speak of the power of joy. Speak joyfully of the power of Jesus. And speak more by way of lesson for us this morning of resurrection, speak more of resurrection, not just eternal life, but resurrection. We talk a lot about eternal life, and it gives this feeling that the great Christian joy is to float around in some ephemeral alternate reality space. That's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is resurrection. Paul said, I've counted all things as lost, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. You will shake the hands of God's people one day. You will sit at table and feast with all of God's people one day. Your eyes will behold all that our hearts have longed for in Christ one day. We are a people of the resurrection. So speak more of resurrection. Pray more towards resurrection. Because the God that can bring the dead back to life is the God who can do things that we may have thought now impossible. Some of you have adult children who have left the faith. Some angrily so. Martha had no hope of seeing her brother again in this world. But God had other plans. And the God who can call Lazarus by name from a tomb can call your loved ones, your friends, whose hearts are now cold and dead towards the things of Christ and call them to life at any time. So never cease to pray towards the hope of resurrection and worship more until resurrection. All of life should be an act of acknowledging the worth of the one who broke the teeth of death and who will call all his own from the dust into an eternity of life. It must compel us to worship. And though all who know the promises and the power of Jesus should be drawn to worship him, the sad reality is not everybody does. It's unlikely even in this room this morning all who are gathered here have come to Christ in worship. When we are confronted with the work and the claims of Jesus, we find ourselves inevitably at a precipice. Will we accept the joy Jesus offers or will we reject it? in favor of some other supposed source of lasting happiness. And we see those gathered around the tomb of Lazarus at that very precipice in verses 45 to 46, where we read, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Here at the precipice of joy, we see the final and expected element of the miracle, this is the response of the people to the miracle. John has shown us each time that Jesus does something supernatural. It divides the crowds. And you have the first group, the many who seeing what Jesus did, believe. What joy must they have experienced as their questions and tentative curiosity about Jesus gave way to belief in the one who could call men from the grave. I imagine Martha staying there going, I told you he was the Messiah. I imagine Mary unable to speak at all. Tears of joy coming down her face. And I wish I could say that that was the inevitable result of witnessing the power of God on display, but it's not true. And In verse 46, we see others instead go to the Pharisees and tell them the things which Jesus had done. Given that John here is contrasting them with those who believed, and given that he has, after all the miracles of Jesus, made a point of showing those who accept and those who reject, I don't think John is simply saying, isn't it neat that all these people went with helpful information to tell the Pharisees so that they could believe? No. Given the open hatred of the Pharisees towards Jesus, this is tattletaling. A miracle like this and the resultant surge of believers could not be ignored. The Jewish leaders had a big problem on their hands if they wanted to maintain their grip on power and influence in Israel. And some in the crowd, even after seeing Lazarus walk from a tomb, believed the most pressing issue was not how to enter into the salvation of the Messiah, but how to deal with Jesus as a political threat. Sadly true today as well couple final lessons for us this morning. First is this. Come forth into joy. Come forth into joy. What a picture of salvation we have here in Lazarus. We are indeed, apart from Christ, dead in our sins. Not sick in our sins. Not tired in our sins. Not oppressed in our sins. Not distressed in our sins. We are dead. And will remain so Unless the one with power over death calls us forth. Is this the day Jesus calls you from the tomb of your sin? Does he even now stir your heart not with a feeling, but with the conviction that the claims of Christ are true? That he came, that he died, that he rose again that he satisfied the wrath of God towards sinners, and that by faith and faith alone, we may have peace with God. If that is the growing conviction of your heart, you may know you are even now hopping towards the open mouth of the grave. Come forth and enter into his joy. And secondly, comfort with joy. Comfort with joy. With joy. Jesus taught us this from early in his ministry. All the way back in John 5, he reminded us truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Paul spoke of this reality in 1 Thessalonians 4 this way For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, create your eschatological timeline charts with these words. No, that's not actually what it says. (laughs) Therefore, comfort one another with these words. For many, the season of Christmas is particularly hard. It brings up too many painful memories of what has happened in the past. We look around us and are haunted by the ghost of Christmas could have been. There is no Christmas present. There is no sentimental song. There's no twinkling light in the falling snow that can bring comfort to such a heart. But the promise of resurrection power can. And indeed it does more than just comfort. It brings joys for those who will fight for it. Joy is still the fruit blossoming in the heart of the believer. It is built on the bedrock of Christ's work. It is produced by the Holy Spirit who can cultivate joy when our human strength and heart fails. And it is no mistake that Paul lists joy nestled between love and peace. And so I close with the words of Peter in 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Would you pray with me? Father, what a thing joy is that you extend to your creature. We are thankful that we do not serve the God of hopes and wishes. But we serve the God who says, let there be, and the God who said, it is finished. We serve the God who knows the end from the beginning and who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. And we have come to know your love for us is without limits, for you have given us your very son. And you who gave us your son, how will you not in Christ also give us all things? Give us joy, Father, we pray, by your spirit. Produce it within us in great measure so that it may not only encourage and console and lift up our spirits, but that it would enable us to be ministers of joy, to proclaim the good news to the world around us and to cast light into dark places. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the privilege we even just have culturally in this country. Take a season to pause and remember your son. May we make the most of it. And we ask if it would be your good pleasure. Might you be pleased to begin that work, even this Christmas, in our loved ones who do not yet know you. Would you call them from the tomb to come forth? And would we be able to see and welcome children of the kingdom this year for your glory and for our everlasting joy?